listeners. We are so excited to be here with you again during this holiday season. You know, it's a season of reflection, joy, and most importantly, hope. We're closing out season six with our final episode of the Prairie Pod. And we know endings can be hard. And we want you to know how much joy this special project has given us, sharing our love of the prairie with all of you. Don't get too sad because while this is one sunset, the sun rises again tomorrow and there are lots of Prairie Pod episodes to go back and listen to. Megan and and Sarah and Marissa, it's so nice to be with you guys. I was just thinking if we can all talk for a minute about just kind of summarize some things we've learned from the podcast over the years. And so for me, um, one thing I've one thing that's really been driven home to me through the podcast is that there's so much mystery about the prairie. There's so much we don't know. And, you know, the same could be said, I know, of, of all ecosystems. But prairie to me seems to be a little bit special in that regard. Um, I mean, quite often, just the very basic question of why it even exists is, is, is kind of a mystery. And to me, I mean, yeah, it's a, it creates challenges, of course, when we're talking about management and conservation. But I, I see it as something that we can exploit. Like, that, that is something that can be that can be used for bringing people in to our um, to our effort to conserve prairie because it, it's exciting. It's, it's 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 good not to know everything, and and prairie I think it really embodies that that um, yeah that mystery. And and um, I'm going to stop babbling. What do you guys think of that? I one of my mentors told me I remember early in my career that we're never going to know everything about prairies and that's okay because it keeps us humble and it also is exciting. Like it keeps it exciting because there's always something new to learn. So I like that, Mike. I think that's a definitely a good take home. Yeah. I mean, and that, and then maybe that is another re- one of the reasons that I love the prairie so much is I love learning new things and there's so much out there still to learn and there's always, yeah, new new ways to go about it. I would say for sure um, one of the things that's been driven home for me being part of this and, and just listening to all the episodes over the years is is also like the sheer amount of people and work that's happening across our prairies too. Like there's so many good people out there doing so much good work and you know, it's been such a joy to get to talk to just some of them and learn about what they're doing. So, you know, part of it's learning about what they're doing, but also just learning about all the people that are out there doing the work and why they're doing it and what their motivations are and and what they're bringing bringing to the um, bringing to the table in terms of the the work to to conserve the praise. I agree with that. I feel like we just started scratching the surface on all the people and all the good work that they're doing. I also think for me, and this is not going to be surprising to Mike or anybody else who listens to the podcast, you know, I, I'm not going to say diversity, but diversity. Like, <laughs> we've learned that that's still so, so, so important. And I also think that you can be a great scientist or just a great, like, promoter for the prairie but unless you're a strong communicator you're going to be missing a big piece of that 
And so I just feel so strongly that it's important to translate what we know into a really accessible way and to make science fun as it should be. And so I think it's really important that we don't covet knowledge only for ourselves, that we continue to share it. And this has been a great platform to share knowledge with each other, with all of you. And that information sharing and that knowledge holding and sharing doesn't stop here. And it doesn't stop today. Yeah, well said. Hopefully we've had lots of people make good connections with new ideas and new ways of appreciating the prairie. And that, yeah, Megan, I think that's a fantastic idea that hopefully can carry through a seed that was planted with this whole effort. I know, right? Scientists as communicators. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but, but, but we yeah. have to be, we need to be, because um, yes. you can't, it, or else we're missing a big part of what makes science so cool. Yeah, and important. I mean, that is that is like the critical piece. Otherwise, people we all start to keep learning the same things over and over again, right? If we can't share our knowledge. So should we move on to all of our amazing guests today? I think so, Mike. I think so. Okay. I just want to get to make sure everybody had said their piece. Um, so this, this podcast maybe is a little different from some, from most of our prior podcasts where we have, you know, a group of guests that we interview at the same time. Uh, we've got, we've got a bunch. I forget how many. It's a bunch, including yours truly and all the people and all the, all of us hosts. We're each telling our own story. Um, we gave our guests a theme what drew them or what continues to draw them to the prairie. So we thought this would be just a really great, a great way to, to end the podcast and, and, and give further inspiration to our listeners. And, and, and yeah, there's some amazing stuff here. It's sunrise on the prairie. The red and pink sun is just cresting the horizon dappling the prairie in light and illuminating purples, whites, golds, yellows, and greens in front of my feet. Grass is wet, covered in dewdrops that blend together, bathing me in prairie water. I take a deep breath, and I exhale with peace. The birds and insects are waking up as I cautiously disturb their home. There's the zzz, zzz, zzz of a clay-colored sparrow and the quiet clangs of a henslow sparrow in the thicker grass. Off in the distance, a dixisle cries from the tallest shrub. Dick Dixisle, heralding the prairie is his for all who are listening. There's rustles at my feet and whispers in the grass. There is life here on this land. This prairie is alive. Hi, my name is Jessica Peterson. I'm an invertebrate ecologist with the Minnesota Biological Survey. It's a program at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I want to tell you a story today about what drew me to the prairie. So this was around 2000, I think, where I, um, during the summer, took a class at Iowa Lakeside Labs. It's a outdoor ecological laboratory that's kind of owned by the three different um, state universities in Iowa. And I was a student at the University of Iowa at the time. And so I drove up all the way to Iowa Lakeside Labs in the far northwest corner of Iowa. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was scheduled to take a prairie ecology class, and the instructor was Dr. Daryl Smith, uh, the man of the prairie. He was 
a legend and I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I, I signed up for this class. It was a month long and every day we would do a little bit of instruction in the morning of the, of the class period that Daryl would call talking the prairie dry, right? So if you've been in the prairie, you know that in the morning there's dew. It's really, if you walk in the prairie in the morning, your feet are going to get wet. Daryl didn't want his feet to get wet. So we talked the prairie dry until about 10 o'clock. And then we would go into these prairies in Northwest Iowa that were just outstanding. And I had no experience prior to this with prairies. And we would learn our prairie plants over and over and over again, an entire four-week class of just immersion in the prairie and learning about fire, learning about grazing, learning about the ecology of the prairie, learning how to monitor prairie plants. But almost every day we would have a quiz. And this was intense. We had to learn all of our prairie plants, over a hundred species we had to learn throughout the course of this class. And so every day we would come back to our cabins. There are these beautiful cabins at Iowa Lakeside Labs. And we would scribble down all of that we learned onto these little note cards and we would then memorize them. And every day I would just fail, completely fail the test because we had to know not only the identity of the plant, but also the family that it was in and um, the Latin name as well as the common name. And I just did terrible. But at the end, I learned it all and I retained it for years and years and years. And so once after I I left the prairie then for a number of years and I came back recently when we moved back to Minnesota and I was astounded at how much I had remembered. And I just, my, my love of the prairie definitely came from this class and came from Daryl's love of the prairie. And he just, he told us everything he knew and I still remember it to today. And I, every time I go out in the field, I think of little stories that Daryl told about um, various plants and, I just, he, he definitely instilled this love of prairie for me. I love it. Hey, I want to go back in time and take that class. <laughs> Finally, I would retain some plants. Like, I don't I always have trouble retaining plants. Yeah. I love it too, yes. Jess, because you turned your failure into opportunity. I read this the other day where somebody said like, we have a flawed relationship with failure where we're constantly afraid of it. And we're always looking at it as the worst thing that could happen. But instead, if we looked at our failures as opportunities for improvement and, and information that we're getting from that about what our next step needs to be, then maybe we wouldn't be so afraid to fail because it's always an opportunity to improve the next time. And I just thought that was so smart. And that's, and you already knew that in college. Look at you. Right. Perseverance. Hey, and I also talking the prairie dry. I'm going to try that next time I go out for a bird survey in the morning. That's not going to work for you. I'm going to talk it dry. (laughs) And uh, I don't know who I'm going to talk to. You don't have that. I love the legacies that we have too, because that just made me start, as you were telling your story, Jess, I started thinking about the professors that I had in grad uh-huh. school that had done some kind of foundational prairie research and fire, prescribed fire work. And just, yeah, it's, it's cool to see those sort of generational connections, professional generational connections. Thank you for that, Jess. Buju and Denoe Magnaduk Anin, Theron Davis Anderson Indigenakaz, Mikinak Wejui Indunjiba, Sipa Singh Indunji. And what I said there was 
Hello, my relatives. My name is Baron Davis Anderson. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, Michifs. Um, I currently work for the Shakopee Metawakatan Sioux Communities Land and Natural Resources Department as the Supervisor of Environmental Sciences. And we're responsible for a lot of different things, but mostly for stewarding and restoring local habitats within our, the community. And our team, we like to use a holistic approach by weaving um, traditional knowledge into our conservation practices. And we try to provide access to culturally significant plants by listening to the community and their needs. So throughout the years, I've gotten a lot of feedback about what the community members would like to see more of on the landscape. And I really appreciate this knowledge and um, try to bring back these plants where it makes sense most ecologically, but it also to bring them back where they want them and where they need them. We also try to address climate change by creating uh, diverse, resilient habitats. You hear a lot about that um, in contemporary Western science. So in our restorations, we try to bring back a suite of species that fill different ecological niches. And we're also working to protect not only native plant communities, but also wildlife populations. And it's been awesome to see a lot of the wildlife that has come back, especially certain grassland species um, and other cool animals like otters. We've seen a lot of otters um, in our local wetlands and, and lakes. So that's been exciting. And you know, we also wanna make sure that the next seven generations here can also experience and have access um, to these spaces. And so now I'll tell you about my prairie story. And that begins in um, Belcourt, North Dakota on the Turtle Mountain Reservation. And that's where I grew up. Um, that's in North, the, North Central North Dakota along the Canadian border. It's one of the only forested areas in the state, which is kind of unique and it's special to me. But it also transitions into a prairie to the south of the reservation. And this is where um, what my dad's barn is. So we lived there in this area until I was about five years old. And so I had a prairie or a mushkode, which means prairie in Anishinaabe Moen, and that's the Anishinaabe or Ojibwe language. Um, so I had access to that prairie. And at that age, I didn't know that, you know, I had access to one of the most endangered habitats in the United States. I just like to be outside and be outside with my sisters and I think we spent most of our time, you know, running around outside. And one of the things that I remember when I was that age, which is kind of crazy because I don't remember a lot of stuff from that age, but I remember seeing um, a plant that caught my eye and it was the prairie lily. Um, I think in Minnesota, most people call it like a wood lily or Lilium uh, philadelphicum. And I thought that it was really pretty. And I just, it, it just struck me. I just remember really liking that plant and, you know, at that time, I didn't know it was a prairie. It was just something that I saw while I was playing outside. And now that I know what I know as an ecologist, that's pretty cool because um, I didn't, I don't get to see that plant very often anymore, but that's something that's always just stuck with me and a plant that I've always um, really appreciated. I think another reason that I'm drawn to prairies is because they're so undervalued by you know, society in general. And so I guess, um, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the term plant blindness, 
but that's the inability of people to notice plants. And I think this happens like very often in prairies because sometimes you have to really get in there to see some of those showy plants like the prairie lily. And I learned this term or learned more about this term from a friend and mentor who recently earned her PhD. Her name is uh, Stacy Blue, Dr. Stacy Blue. And her research was about plant blindness and how that can lead to a loss of generational knowledge and cultural identity in Indigenous communities. <clears throat> and so in her research, she surveyed over 200 people from our home community, and she found that participants were able to identify forest and wetland plants best, but they struggled with prairie plants. And older individuals were able to identify more plants than younger individuals, which isn't really surprising, but it's upsetting because our people are losing that part of their culture and identity. So, you know, we need to be able to recognize plants or be able to identify them if we're going to acknowledge and know their gifts. So these plants are a part of our ceremonies and they can be used as medicines. And something that I think about all the time is something that an elder told me, her name is Hope Flanagan, who works for um, the Dream of Wild Health in the Twin Cities area. She's very knowledgeable and really generous with her teachings. And she said that, you know, if we don't acknowledge these plants, they're going to think that we don't need them anymore. So that's something that I think about and why I continue to do what I do. And, and I find such value in, you know, restoring these areas and valuing the prairies because they provide a lot of gifts. And so um, we want others to have access to these areas too. And, you know, having access allows you to appreciate, acknowledge the importance of these spaces. Um, so I think that's really important in our work. And one of the reasons that I want to continue to do what I do and hopefully, you know, we'll um, decrease plant blindness and help people appreciate the prairies a little bit more. And that's my story. <laughs> I love that, Farron. I especially love what you said that the prairie is and the plants that are growing there are giving us gifts. Yeah. And that we need to acknowledge those gifts. I think that's super important. Yeah. And I I talk to the plants when I'm in the prairie. So hopefully the work I've heard her. the work that's happening. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they're they're hearing where I'm that lady who's out there being like, Good morning, hello. <laughs> like, how are you today? You said a lot of interesting things there, Farron. That was really good. Some some really interesting perspectives that I think I I will get a lot of benefit from if I can start moving in that direction. Like like yeah, appreciating them if they think they we, that we don't need them, like that might impact them um, in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's yeah, the best way to for, to let them know that we need them is to get out there and appreciate them, right? Mm -hmm. We just have to appreciate them more. We do. We just have to appreciate them more. Thank you for everything you do to teach us every day. And thank you for letting the plants know that you're, you're here and you appreciate them. Um, my name is Diane Larson, and I work for U.S. Geological Survey Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Center. Um, and this is my prairie story. Prairies remind me of those little nesting matryoshka dolls. Each doll conceals a new, smaller doll within it, and every time I look at prairies, I find new things that, formerly, that were formerly concealed by other things. 
When I first began working in North Dakota, having spent most of my life among mountains, I thought the prairies were as flat as a pancake. But when I actually got out there and started walking around on them, they revealed their deceptive topography. My truck mysteriously disappeared and I got lost temporarily. With more exploration, I began to see the inadequacy of the term prairie. There are so many different plant communities subsumed within that simple name. But then as I began to understand that different communities exist in this beautiful complex mosaic, I found that this mosaic hides endlessly varying soil nutrient texture and moisture relationships. And not only that, but a whole new world of fungi, bacteria, and arthropods further hides among and within the roots of the prairie plants, even linking different plants to one another underground. So mutualistic interactions have been termed the architecture of biodiversity, and this really resonates in prairies. The give and take between plants and pollinators is one of the signature prairie motifs, and everyone has a role to play. Monarchs nectaring on their beloved liatris, sunflower bees wallowing in composite flower pollen, bumblebees game for any flower big enough to hold them, and even a few that aren't, and surfeit flies that delicately land in the middle of asters. And then as a result of these mutualism, plant, plant pollinator mutualisms, plant seed disperser interactions emerge, but not all of these are mutualisms. The wild licorice that sticks to fur and clothing, waiting to be groomed off at a place to put down roots, is more nuisance than mutualist. But a few plants produce nutritious arils or eliasomes that reward animals that carry the seeds away from the mother plant. Ants are a major beneficiary of nutritious eliasomes, but the plants also often gain a nurturing place for the seeds to sprout. The wind is a friend to many prairie plants, growing the seeds and pollen far and wide. I will leave it to the poets to speculate on what the wind gets in return for this service. I once concluded a presentation with this sentiment. Ask not what your ecosystem can do for you. Ask what you can do for your ecosystem with props to JFK. I think these are words to live by for those of us who love prairie. Prairie is vulnerable on the one hand to conversion to row crop agriculture and on the other to benign neglect. Returning a landscape of corn and soybeans to any semblance of prairie is a long and difficult process and one that we're still learning how to do properly. And while we're still learning to restore prairie, more acres are being plowed under. It's a constant game of catch up and so far we're not staying even. Add to this the seemingly unstoppable invasion of non-native grasses in remnant as well as restored prairies and the picture can look pretty grim. But again, on closer inspection, stars shine through. Few ecosystems enjoy the dedicated following inspired by prairies. Members of civic and friends groups volunteer their time to help maintain select tracts of prairie. Municipal, county, state, and federal agencies work hard to manage and restore prairies. And nonprofits keep the big picture in mind as they foster conservation at a landscape scale. Prairie birds, mammals, and even some charismatic invertebrates have long had advocates promoting their well-being. Science sheds, light, science sheds light on all these efforts with research designed to improve stewardship and restoration. So as I look beneath the surface, I'm encouraged and optimistic that prairie will persist. I like it. That was so beautiful, Diane. Thank you. It was beautiful. You covered all the parts and pieces and you left us with hope. 
I had to come around to that hope bit. (laughs) I'm Jamie Edwards. I'm the manager of the Whitewater Wildlife Management Area. And what continues to draw me to the prairie is the constant change. It's a beautiful landscape, but to be able to see it change over time and see the diversity of plants that continue to express themselves, especially as you manage these sites and see them develop over time. And then right now with the fall weather, just seeing how beautiful it is in the context of a forested edge um, that we have in Southeast Minnesota. So I think that's what draws me, um, just, just the different plants that you see and then the wildlife species that respond to them as you manage these sites and see them through time. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Jamie, that that we don't appreciate often enough is the change. You know, we we, we talk so much about diversity. That diversity happens through time as well. Yeah, right. And, and like Especially just, as we're restoring some of these sites that have been really overgrown with brush and to see them go mm-hmm. from buckthorn or even some of the native brush with no no grass or flower understory, just dirt, sometimes even moss. And then to see them, the grass come back and the flowers come back. And then just to see that diversity each year you go, there's different plants. And even if you had a area that was fairly well intact, still being able to see the difference um, over time that, that you see new plants coming in or the season changes, it's a drought and you have some that do well in drought and others that do well in wetter conditions. So being able to see all that is, is um, what continues to draw me and pull me in and remind me that there's such a rewarding habitat to work in. So um, that, that's, that's what I love about it. Very cool. Yeah. I, that resonates with me so much. I, the, how dynamic the prairies were, I think is, is also one of the reasons that sort of once I discovered grasslands, like really drew me to it because it's all, it's how seeing how those processes interact, like the fire and the grazing and then the interactions that all of the different species have to create the larger whole and the beauty that we see in, in that diversity. So, yeah, I agree that dynamic nature of the prairie is, is inspiring. I also like that you can see different prairies. So it's, everybody thinks that, you know, it might just be a prairie is a prairie, but it's not. You've got a prairie in Southeast Minnesota that may have very similar species, but you go to Southwest Minnesota and see it in a completely different context. It could be um, just these wide open expanses um, that you can see versus in Southeast Minnesota, it's more these pocket prairies. But then also just seeing the the different species that we don't have and still a prairie, but it's just it's just rewarding or seeing a wet prairie. And so there's just so many different types and then the diversity of them all. And and it's just always something new to discover every time you're out there. Mm-hmm. I love that. We've joked a little bit on the podcast that like there's one constant on the prairie and that's change that it will always yeah. change. And we get into yeah. a, our minds this idea of like what a prairie is or should be. And that's the most trapping thought we can have because our job as steward to the prairie is to make sure that we allow that change. We allow that flux to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Recognizing it too. That's, that's also important because sometimes we try to manage a certain way and make things happen a certain way, but being able to be flexible ourselves. And I think sometimes the prairie helps teach us that, that we ha- we also have to have flexibility in how we look at things and appreciate the change. 
Prairie teaches us. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jamie. You're welcome. Yeah, so my name is Fred Harris. I'm a prairie ecologist at the Minnesota Biological Survey. Um, I've been doing, working here for almost 30 years. And for most of my career, it's been about locating and evaluating and documenting significant areas of native prairie in Minnesota. I've worked in uh, western Minnesota from Iowa up to Canada and and also then down into the southeastern part of Minnesota as well. And it's been really an incredible ride to be able to go out and find out cool places that are left out there document what's there and actually get paid for it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so um, I guess I will relate how I got started with working on prairies. Um, and it's kind of a story of, uh, of several little bits that kind of led me to this place. And um, it involves different professors and different academic institutions actually that kind of got me um, oriented toward native prairies. Um, when I grew up as a kid in Ohio, I was really a bird watcher and very interested in birds. And by the time I went to college, I was really motivated to work on protecting natural areas. That was something that was a goal in my head. Um, I went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota in the late 1970s and um, immediately got caught up in a lot of ferment about native prairies that was going on in the 70s. Um, the main source was my major advisor, the ecology professor, Paul Jensen, who had in the 60s persuaded the college to purchase a 33-acre prairie located about a few miles east of Northfield called McKnight Prairie. I think the time in the 60s they purchased it for $7,000, about 33 acres. So, and he got a lot of his students involved in managing this prairie and um, uh, documenting and mapping what was there and uh, there's just a lot of enthusiasm and, and awareness being awakened about how um, rare prairies are and uh, that's how special it was and wandering around McKnight and seeing the diversity of plants was really kind of eye-opening. I was still a bird guy but it was my first exposure to that, um, that whole world. And uh, so then after after college, I ended up in Peace Corps in Africa for three years and came back from Peace Corps in the early 1980s during a really heavy duty economic recession. And still wanting to work in natural areas conservation, I was trying to uh, find jobs whatever jobs were open, internships, seasonal positions. And I I remember applying for a seasonal position at the Nature Conservancy 
which was to um, uh, monitor a peregrine falcon hack site at Weaver Dunes. So they were releasing peregrine falcon babies there, and they needed somebody to on hand to watch the peregrine falcon babies <laughs> and chew away great horned owls that were preying on peregrine falcon babies. And um, they wouldn't hire me. I was told I needed a I needed I needed a to go to grad school. I'm like, you need to go to grad school to scare great horned owls. Um, anyway, that was, um, there was a lot of competition for those jobs because as I said, it was an economic, real serious economic re, um, recession. I was competing with a lot of people coming out of grad school. So that got me back to the University of Minnesota thinking about, um, doing graduate school and taking some classes that uh, filled in the background that I needed for graduate school, things like organic chemistry that I had managed to avoid as an undergraduate and realizing I didn't wanna only be taking organic chemistry. I ended up in um, Gerald Owen B's last floor of Minnesota class. He was a long-term uh, manager of the herbarium and uh, that was really eye-opening. Um, we'd go on field trips and he had about a dozen of us students um, writing down everything he was saying and just totally blissed out about trying to identify all the plants that we saw. And there was a lot of em emphasis on prairies and, and the rarity of prairies. I remember seeing a uh, prairie shooting star, which, I think was at Casota Prairie, but it's never been recorded there before. And then I also had a class on ecological plant geography, which was uh, from Ed Cushing, who is another legendary professor at the University of Minnesota, who really inspired a lot of people to work in conservation and ecology and really kind of focused my interest on um, plant communities and plant geography and why they occur where they are and things like that. So I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Kansas to study botany. Once I finished, was finishing grad school, I was very fortunate to get hired by Brian Winter at the Nature Conservancy for a year as an intern in the Minnesota field office to um, map prospective natural areas and coordinate volunteers for prairie seed protection. Uh, restoration. And then uh, that led to getting hired in the biological survey in 1992 by Carmen Converse. And um, I was recruited to um, start documenting some prairie sites in counties in northwestern Minnesota under the tutelage of Robert Dana. And um, my main county at that time was Pennington County. And uh, there was one really extraordinary site um, that was at the time called Goose Lake Swamp, which is not a swamp. It's um, a huge site that's several miles long of native prairie. It really uh, was an extraordinary site um, with 
a range of different prairie communities and different microhabitats. Documented about 15 different rare plant species, including a new um, population of western prairie fringed orchid. And um, that really, that was sort of the place that really cemented my my love of and my focus of native prairies. And um, I was really fortunate in the biological survey to be able to go and check out potential new native prairie sites every day for the field season. And as you keep doing that, you get to know and recognize the full diversity of species that are out there. And um, it's, it's a great rush to find a new place that nobody knew about that uh, um, is important for conservation. Fred, that, that, that was great. And I, I, I sure hope you're proud of all the of all the prairie that you found and all the work you've done. You are a legend. Some, I think probably some of the highest highlights of my career have been um, finding places that um, could be protected for conservation and playing a role in nominating them for, for conservation either by the DNR or by the Nature Conservancy and actually having seven of them, several of them actually make it to being preserves because they had landowners who were willing to um, protect those places. And uh, I think those are some among my proudest moments. Yeah, I um, just have to say thank you for all the work you've done over the years and the guidance you've given me too. I, I love your story and um, it's incredible the the gift you've given to conservation and all the years you've put into being out on our prairies and documenting that diversity. And I have to say, I also loved the vision of you potentially chasing great horned owls in <laughs> across the prairies yeah. as well. My, my takeaway from this is the only reason why Fred's a prairie biologist is because some smart person earlier in his career decided he could not shoo owls away. I mean, that is quite, that is quite the trajectory change. No, sir, you may not do that. You are destined to become a prairie ecologist instead. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah. Yep. Thanks so much, Fred. Well, it, it, I really appreciate this opportunity to um, talk about my story. Thank you very much. Okay, so our next guest that we have here, this format is a little bit different. We're going to do it with the guest because he's been our behind the scenes go-to guy for every episode of the podcast to date. And if you're one of the listeners who listens to the very end of the podcast all the way to the credits, then his name's going to sound familiar to you. We're very excited to welcome Dan Ryder to the pod. Woohoo! Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a little bit of a different role for me being on this side of the production, but oh, you but know, Dan, it's a very cool experience nonetheless. 
You're so familiar with media. Being on mic is not like unfamiliar to you. You know all about like being in front of the camera and telling a story. You're a news anchor. Although our listeners won't see the camera part of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lucky for them. Yeah. Yeah. I worked uh, in uh, the news industry for 20 years and then came to the DNR mid-career. And uh, I was really excited to join the DNR back in 2016 because I was a lifelong hunter, angler, and uh, really enjoyed our state parks, our state trails, and, you know, really kind of what I learned once I joined the DNR was that was just really scratching the surface um, of what DNR does. Um, there's so much more uh, to what the Department of Natural Resources does, and uh, I'm constantly learning, which makes the job great. Dan, you sound like a proud Minnesotan. Um, I, I, I've heard you say it many times. You never grew up. You've never hidden the fact that you grew up in Southwest Minnesota. Nope, Murray County grew up at the foothills of uh, Buffalo Ridge, a uh, small town of Lake Wilson. So, uh, which was kind of interesting when I joined the DNR. A lot of people knew actually where I grew up, so uh, I wasn't used to that because uh, dealing with a lot of folks from other parts of the state or other st- uh, other states actually too. Um, they weren't as familiar with Southwest Minnesota as a lot of my colleagues are uh, here in the DNR. First part of my childhood um, was that on, on Grandpa's farm, actually. We lived on Grandpa's farm. It was surrounded by wildlife management area on, on three sides. Uh, there was wetlands surrounding it. So if if you're really into wildlife, it was, it was paradise. I mean, uh, muskrats, beavers, um, cranes. Um, I mean, it was just, it was really, really something. Um, so grew up hunting deer, hunting pheasants, fishing. Um, and I just thought that was normal. And then we moved into town and, uh, you know, on the banks of Lake Wilson and, uh, from there paddling and fishing, swimming. Um, it was just, you know, really being regularly outdoors and it was a great way to grow up. Well, it sounds like you found yourself right at home here at DNR as an information officer who proudly and efficiently edits the podcast for us, makes sure that it all sounds seamless at the end, which is work that we have greatly appreciated you doing over the years. Well, thank you. I I mean, it is one aspect of my job. Um, As a DNR information officer, I handle media matters, uh, um, write news releases, uh, help out with social media, and yeah, edit the, the Prairie Pod. My, my job also includes uh, extensive work, uh, the annual Minnesota Governor's Pheasant Hunting Opener. Um, and that's an event that highlights conservation work in the pheasant range, but it's also something that provides our smaller rural communities, um, you know, to be in the spotlight um, and really showcase what they have to offer. And for me, really what brought everything home was probably the uh, um, work that I was doing in Laverne ahead of the 2018 Minnesota Governor's Pheasant Hunting Opener. Um, one of the, the resources that was highlighted was Touch the Sky Prairie, um, you know, along with the work of, of famed photographer uh, Jim Brandenburg. So Jim grew up in Laverne, loved the prairie, and his photos just really spoke to me in a way that I just didn't expect. And uh, when I found myself out at Touch the Sky Prairie, I, I, I felt like I'd come home. I mean, it was all there. The, the wind, the sun, the birds, butterflies, how the grass touched the horizon. Um, 
<laughs> and it, it was, I was really struck by just, you know, how could all this beauty been here all around me without me noticing? Um, you know, it just uh, really uh, hit home for me. And I guess the other time um, was when I was out in the field with you, Megan, uh, out on the Prairie Coteau uh, near Lake Benton, actually, if we're going to be specific. The hills there are just uh, so familiar or similar, I should say, to, to the hills just outside my grandparents' home in Chandler, Minnesota. Um, just the familiarity of the topography. Um uh, I'd grown up hunting deer in those hills, and I really just underestimated the feeling I would get by being back in that environment. I mean, it's home. The prairie is home. Yeah, that's a that's a very simple and true statement for us, I think, and many of our listeners, most of them, I imagine. Dan, I'm I'm so happy the listeners are getting to, to, to getting to hear from you. Megan mostly gets all the glory because of the hard work, and she puts it. <laughs> I, I get no, some. There's no resentment for Mike there for this. You know, just us, us hosts. You know, we we hear back from people. I don't. People in general, though, don't realize how important your role has been uh, in the podcast over the years. And so, thank you for that. You've been super important, and we couldn't have done it without you. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's really, it, it's been a privilege. And, and I mean that uh, because there's a ton of hard work involved by everyone. I mean, um, it, to the untrained ear, perhaps, maybe it's just a couple of people turning on microphones and just talking. That's what we aim for, right? We all know, though, uh, th there's so much more to it. Than, than right. just that. I mean, you you have to do a lot of research into the topic ahead of time. Yep. You, you know, there's just a lot of homework that goes on behind the scenes before we ever get to record day. I feel we've put out a, a, a pretty darn good product. And uh, that was a, the aim all along. And I think we did that. And, and I just feel fortunate to be a part of that. Um, Partially because I I love being a part of um, a successful project, but also because I learned. <laughs> I learned from from the two of you so much, um, and 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 from the guests as well. Um, you know, some of the challenges may, I I think made me a better editor um, and maybe a more skilled communicator on behalf of the DNR. But really, what I learned about the prairie and, and the people that I've gotten to meet through the two of you and, and really my friendship with the two of you, uh, you just, it's, it's priceless. It really is. So truly thank you for the past six seasons. Really. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I'm Sarah Bosick, one of your Prairie Pod hosts and a biologist with the Fish and Wildlife Service in Morris, Minnesota. And this is my story about what draws me to the Prairie. Like a lot of prairie enthusiasts, I kind of stumbled into my love affair with prairies. Early on, I was really drawn more to aquatic ecosystems, especially wetlands. That's where I played as a kid. We spent a lot of time catching turtles and frogs, and wetlands were the focus of my research when I was in college and graduate school. And I do still really love wetlands, and I don't think it's a mistake that we ended up settling in the prairie pothole region where we get to spend our time working and playing in both prairies and wetlands. Anyway, the first time I was really exposed to a prairie was on a family camping trip to Blue Mound State Park. 
in southwestern Minnesota. I think it was the summer after my first year of college. So it was my my parents and my sister and myself. Before that, all of our camping trips and um, wilderness adventures had been pretty focused on the lakes and forests of northern Minnesota. And so any prairies I had really seen otherwise had just been something you kind of had to drive through to get someplace else cool. <laughs> um, I don't remember a ton of details about that trip to Blue Mounds. I remember being initially a little disappointed that our cart and campsite that we had didn't have any trees. That felt weird to me. But then I also remember being really surprised when we got to the campsite that all the grass was tall enough to make us feel totally isolated from the other campsites. I'd never seen grass that tall. And although we still wished for some shade because it was a really hot summer weekend, that was also my first exposure to the prairie sun, power of the prairie sun. I remember seeing the tall grasses waving in the wind and hearing the sounds of birds and insects. And I remember climbing on the rock outcrops there and even finding a cactus, which I had no idea we had in Minnesota. I remember watching the bison herd and marveling that they could look so content and comfortable in that hot sun, we were struggling so much with the heat and there they were with their huge dark brown bodies in the full sun, just happy as could be. But I think the strongest memory that I have of that trip actually is more kind of of a feeling that sort of lodged itself inside of me, which was just this sense of how open it was. On all of our previous camping trips, in the forest, I had really come to value the sense of remoteness and sort of connection with nature that I had experienced. But somehow being able to see the whole sky at once made that connection and that remoteness feel magnified. It was bigger somehow. I'd say that big open vista, open sky was what drew me to the prairie originally, but it's still one of my favorite things about the prairie today. We have the best sunrises and sunsets, and people marvel about that whenever they visit us and are seeing the sunsets from our porch. We have cloud formations in the sky that will rival any majestic mountain range. And I actually feel a little claustrophobic when I'm in a forest now, especially if there's bad weather coming because I can't see the clouds in which way they're moving. So after 20 years of living and working on the prairie, I think that openness is what still really makes it feel like home to me. That was great, sir. I, I love how you, yeah, you equate the, the clouds to the mountains and... Uh-huh. Legit. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you made that comparison. And I, I just, yeah, I've experienced so much of the same kind of feelings you had coming from forest. And, um, and yeah, I totally agree that openness is super talking bad. to people about that and thinking it was kind of silly. Like, how can it really matter that much? But I totally get it now. <laughs> I get it too. Yeah. So much of that resonates with me, the wide open space, the clouds, yep. it just resonates. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. I'm Mike Worland. I'm a biologist with the Non-Game Wildlife Program for the Minnesota DNR. Also co-host, along with these other fabulous people on the podcast. Um, so my story, uh, uh, Sarah kind of stole my thunder already when she when she told her story, of assuming everybody had heard that. But like a, a, one of the main things that has drawn me to the prairie is its openness or and it, the space that you have there. So I'll, I'll just kind of try to – I want to try not to say too many of the same things that Sarah said, but I'll point out some things that I think are 
are important uh, in addition to what she said. Yeah, so like Sarah, I came from the forest, and I think maybe even Marissa mentioned it. I don't know if it was during the recording or not, but like there, you can get a little bit claustrophobic in the forest, and that that is legit. Like there was a couple of times in the in the when I worked in the you know you, you spend all day underneath a, the a dense canopy of northern hardwoods forest, especially the mature stuff, and yeah, you can get a little claustrophobic. There's you don't you don't see anything but except a little sliver of the sky here and there. And I don't mean as a knock on forests. I love I love forests, and it kind of gives you you know this cozy, comfortable feeling, right? But when I, so I got hired to work here in Minnesota. You know, it, it, literally within a day, I went from the forest in northern Wisconsin to the wide open prairie, <laughs> and, and it happened in one day. And just, and just immediately, I was drawn, you know, to that to that openness, that sky, and that, all that space. It, it just felt like such a huge luxury. And so I've, I found since then that, um, you know, it's it's really useful for me to look at the sky if I'm really wanting to think about something, think carefully and slowly and, and really focus on something. I look at the sky while I'm doing that. And Prairie is a great place to do that, of course. Um, I was thinking about how, you know, we talk about openness and space, like in theory – you can get that in a parking lot. And, and in fact, I have experienced it in a parking lot. Like for example, in Hutchinson, when I, that's where I was first hired in Southern Minnesota. Um, there's a big strip of parking lots along highway 15 going through town, big parking lots. And it's just a big continuous strip of them. And, and so, yeah, you can see a big chunk, most of the sky from there. So I go to the grocery store and I'd come out and I'd see this amazing cloud formation or sunset or something. And I, I noticed that a number of times. But it, it, it is not the same as the prairie for reasons that probably go without. I mean, it's kind of hard to articulate the reasons for it. But, but it is, there is a definite difference. The prairie and the sky kind of have this symbiotic relationship where you, it's hard to think about one without thinking about the other, at least for me. Um, I looked at my the photos I've taken in the prairie um, and I think almost all of them, all, all the ones I looked at that were my favorites, the, the prairie is featured along with the sky. I never just took a photo of the sky when I was in prairie. The two were always together. So that says something I think about the importance of both of those components. Um, the other thing when talking about openness or space in prairie, you know, for me as a wildlife biologist that I really value, and that's the ability to see wildlife, you know, again, comparing to forest, I, you know, I, I did bird surveys, a lot of bird sur- surveys in, in, in forest. And I think, yeah, well over 90% of those detections in forest were vocalizations only. Like I never, I never saw the bird. They're up in the canopy somewhere, and there's just a lot of vegetation between me and that bird. But in prairie, it's much different. I think I'm just guessing, again, roughly, that easily a quarter of the birds I detect in prairie, I actually I actually see them. Um, it'll be interesting to hear if others agree with that. But I think, you know, so as a as as a biologist, that that's a big that's a big plus. But for anybody that just loves viewing wildlife. Um, the prairie 
offers a, just so much value, I think, because you can see the wildlife. Again, not a knock against forests because I love <laughs> there's lots of great wildlife in forests. Yeah, but you get to see more in prairie, just to be fair. Just want to throw that out there. That's great, Mike. I think being able to see the animals is definitely a plus, and particularly for my, my kiddos. I think mm-hmm. that's one, you know, for kids and getting them excited about things. But I was also thinking about your statement. You know, many of us have talked about how we like are drawn to prairies with the wide open space. And then you started talking about photos, and I realized – You know, that is one of the things that I have struggled with in terms of how to, I want, I I would love to put prairies on my walls, right? And pictures and like a photo never does the wide, you cannot capture that feeling of wide open space with the picture. You look at it and you're like, this is really boring picture of like some sky and some grass. And you're like, but it was an amazing (laughs) view in this picture. It looks so boring, which is maybe one of the reasons why like you really have to get into a prairie. And once you get into a prairie and you experience that, like it changes your relationship because it seems like it's so hard to capture with photos um but yeah that's well put yeah i always whenever i do see a a photo of prairie and sky that really um that really that really reinforces that experience then i know then i know i'm dealing with a, a very good photographer and it's it's kind of rare yeah true it could also be my photography skills <laughs> or lack thereof <laughs> that, that. it's hard to capture a feeling for sure yep, yeah that's, and that's well, what it is that feeling of openness mm-hmm. hi i'm marissa allering i'm one of your prairie pod hosts and director of science for the nature conservancy in minnesota north dakota and south dakota And I would say the ocean brought me to the prairie, which is kind of a funny statement, but um, is really true because I grew up in Missouri, um, but I spent a lot of time on the coast in Southern California because that's where my dad was from and my grandparents were out there. And so I had a lot of time opportunities to kind of snorkel and over the years, I would love to go to aquariums with my parents. And I just loved watching all of the tiny creatures and diversity that you can see when you could just either just like float by a coral reef or like stand at an aquarium and watch all the tiny little fish and corals, I just stand there forever and watch all of that diversity. Um, and so I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. But, you know, I grew up in Missouri and then I went to school in Nebraska <laughs> for college. And I would say, to, to be fair, they had a marine ecologist there and I did take marine ecology. But I also got involved with undergraduate research um, with an entomology professor, and I was surveying prairies in tall grass, not prairies, butterflies in tall grass prairie, um, in restored prairies and remnant prairies. And it was my first exposure to being out in the middle of a prairie, and I discovered the incredible, also tiny diversity that exists right here in the middle of the U.S., where very few people are looking Um, you know, I grew up in Missouri, not far from prairies, but would only ever see them from a distance. And once I got out in one, I just loved standing there, looking in the grasses, seeing all the little flowers and insects and critters and creatures and beans that are just right there, um, hiding almost from view from, from a distance. Um, and I loved my days out on the prairie, getting to observe all those cool plants, um, and animals that are really just hidden from the average passerby. And so that's really what keeps me bringing me back to the prairie, um, why I wanted to become a champion for this incredible ecosystem, 
um, because it's so often overlooked. Um, I love discovering the diversity of many of the tiny beans that are out on the prairie, experiencing the wide open space of the large intact prairies that we have up here in particular, because in Nebraska and Missouri, where I had my first exposure to prairies, they are a lot smaller. Um, but the wide open spaces up in the northern prairies are just incredible. And watching those cloud formations roll across the sky. Um, and I want others to have that opportunity to see and appreciate the beauty that we have in this world and right here um, in our backyards. I was thinking, uh, you know, a, a few times now since I've been on the podcast, Megan and I, I think I usually initiated it, talked about some parallel between the ocean and prairie. And anyway, so it's very fitting. And usually she made fun of me whenever I brought it up. Um, but <laughs> it, it's very fitting that I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up again on this final episode. I was very appropriate. That was a, that was a great story. Yeah. People often talk about oceans of grass, but I think mm -hmm. the parallels go beyond just like the wide open space of the ocean and the wide open space of the prairies. But there's that, that level of tiny diversity and, uh -huh. um, you know, really digging deep to see it is, is pretty cool. Hi, my name is Megan Benage. Um, I think you're used to hearing my voice on here. I'm a regional ecologist with Minnesota DNR. And I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, what drew or what draws me to the prairie. I'm, I'm not sure it was love at first sight for me, but I know without a doubt that it has grown into an everlasting kind of love for me in the prairie. This land, this place, it's home. Somewhere in my soul, I always knew that was the case. It wasn't one moment, but you know, a lifetime of collected moments cascading across my memory and building a deep connection to the prairie. I think one of my most pivotal moments that really cemented this love for me and drew me to the prairie was when I was in graduate school. I had my cool overalls on and my fanny pack filled with small mammal processing supplies. You know, I had this awesome study where I was trying to learn a lot about the prairie. We're basically comparing populations in a pre-restored prairie versus restored prairies of these different animal groups to try to understand a little bit more about diversity and how well we were doing with our reconstructions. And one of those animal groups was small mammals. So I had covered one of our prairie restorations at the Purdue Wildlife Area with small live animal Sherman box traps. They have this little trap door, you know, that comes down and clicks in. And in the back of the trap, you put some kind of bait to lure the tiny animals in. And when you catch them, you go through your processing, right? So you give them an ear tag that's unique to that animal. You weigh them. You check their vitals, their health. And what you're really trying to do is get a measure of abundance and recapture based on how many times you see that particular animal again. And, you know, <laughs> this is the thing about science. You can design a study to do a specific thing, and nature will always throw surprises your way. I can't tell you how many times I would open the trap and a bird would fly out. Of course, right at your face. And then other times you'd lift the trap up, and it would feel so heavy. And inside you just knew, right? You knew you're like, there's something in here. There's something in here. It's big. And the traps are pretty small. So it's something that has really stuffed itself into this into this tiny Sherman trap. And of course, inside it's a rat, right? Or a chipmunk. Chipmunks are cute. Like I really like chipmunks, but they are arguably the worst animal to catch in a trap because they do not like it 
one little bit. So it is very difficult to process the feisty chipmunks and weigh them and collect all the data that you need without, you know, getting a few scars along the way. I'll never forget this one day I approached one of my traps and there had been a lot of empties, which makes for fast sampling, but it is always a little disappointing. I lift up the trap and it's light, so light. So I go to reset it, you know, just cautiously opening the door to peek inside, thinking there isn't something in here. And lo and behold, just sitting calmly, her face smeared with peanut butter was a tiger salamander. I was pretty new to the prairie, and I was honestly surprised that an amphibian was in the prairie habitat and that peanut butter, oats, and seeds, which I used as bait, would have lured her in. I set her on her way, kind of laughing to myself a little because she just looks so cute, you know, with her little non-existent amphibian lips smeared with peanut butter. But the next day I caught her again. Same trap, same peanut butter smeared lips. And the next day again. And the next, again. Each time I'd set her free wondering. I started to read more about tiger salamander habitat, and I started to think about the prairie as one connected landscape. I started visualizing the Purdue wildlife area and thinking about all of the connections across this space. Where was she traveling from? Where were the wetlands? How far did she walk to get here? Why does she like peanut butter so much? And then the prevailing thought, as I walked transects on those fall days with the deepening hues of the prairie changing to red and gold and bronze, have I done enough? How good is this prairie restoration? Does it have everything it needs to support her life and the life of so many others that call it home? How connected is it? And how can we make it more connected? Diversity and connection, the two pillars that hold our world together, constantly swirling in my mind, constantly a common frame of reference as I think about the work that I've done and if it is going to make a difference for the prairie. There came a time where I didn't catch her again, and I felt this sense of loss. You know, my secret friendship with this small spotted friend was at an end but my kinship with her persists. I haven't stopped thinking about her. All these years later, I still ask myself the question I asked that fall day on the prairie. Have I done enough? Hamitaki Yapi. Hello, my relatives and friends. My name is Gwen Westerman, and I am the Poet Laureate of Minnesota and a lifelong lover of the prairie. I want to start with a poem. It's called Early Freeze. Since we're at the end of October, beginning of November, I thought it was a good choice for you to hear. Early Freeze. I watched the moon creep up beyond the trees. Through the yellow glitter of cottonwood leaves, it slips into the darkened palm of the sky. As the horizon bleeds into dusk, I run my hand across the nap of the land and feel frozen corn stalks bristle across my palm. Trying to piece together what is left, 
fingers numbed by a bitter cold and unprepared for the sting, I let the wind take my breath. My earliest memories are of the prairie. Um, I grew up in Kansas and Oklahoma, made my way north to Minnesota and can't imagine being anywhere else where I could see the horizon no matter what direction I looked and hear the wind coming across the prairie. Um, it's part of my cellular makeup, I think, as, as a Dakota person, especially uh, this land really calls out to me. This past summer, um, I finally got a chance to stop at the Tallgrass National Prairie um, in Kansas and stood at the summit. I guess prairies have summits. The tallest place, the highest place at the Tallgrass Prairie where there was a 360 degree unobstructed view of grass and rolling hills uh, for as far as we could see. And it was one of the most inspiring moments I think I've ever experienced. Similar to our special place here in southwestern Minnesota, um, Miniopa State Park, where we have a bison herd. The Tallgrass National Prairie also has a bison herd. So to be able to know that they roam from that place in Kansas all the way up into Manitoba, following that same shape of the land that was shaped by an inland sea from beyond memory just made me feel connected to something much, much bigger than myself. It's hard to explain sometimes to other people why I love the open prairie. And sometimes they'll say, well, there's nothing to see. And my response is, oh, <laughs> yes, there is a lot to see. You have to be still and open your eyes, open your ears, and open your heart. And you'll be amazed at all of the varieties of birds and grasses and flowers, the way the seasons change and how that affects the land. For me, Tallgrass Prairie is the most beautiful place on earth. And that kind of connection, I think, is something that we could all benefit from. Um, I can't imagine living in a large city where my feet would only touch concrete no matter where I went and have limited places within those concrete cities where there was actually grass and trees. <laughs> no horizon, 
No music of birds and wind and trees and leaves and grass blowing. And um, that's just how deep, I think, my genetic connection is to the prairie. Generations beyond generations of my family on both sides have, have been connected to this space. Coming to Minnesota was coming home for me. Even though I was raised in Kansas and Oklahoma, Minnesota is the place that shaped my identity into what it was meant to be. And I know that probably sounds kind of strange, but this is the place where I finally felt like I was at home. And so I'm going to share another poem with you. It's called Below the Surface. And this is about coming back to Minnesota. Below the Surface. A blackbird calls as I round the last bend, familiar melody in its song. Nothing knocks down the dust in my throat kicked up along the road I used to know well. Fleeting shadows among trees, along creeks and bluffs, carry names filled with more than history. In a landscape shaped by shifting rivers and roads, stories surface like stone tools along river banks after a heavy rain. Off the highway, marked with red and yellow on an abandoned map, I can hear the song. Whispers of morning doves echo across the ravine like evening prayers. I am thirsty and I know the way home. Many, many thanks to you. Many thanks to you, Gwen. You. That is beautiful as always and your way of weaving words together. We just wanted to give it the pause for everybody to let it resonate in a way that it should resonate with people. That finding your way home to the prairie, that's just so powerful. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen. That was wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity and this wonderful podcast. Gwen is such an amazing storyteller. It's hard to follow her with our final story, a description of Prairie Sunset, but we'll do our best. The sun is sinking lower on the horizon. The sky is shifting every several minutes as the clouds dress themselves in red, then gold, then pink. And finally, choosing a soft purple blue to fade into night. The prairie is changing too. The wildness of the morning as life awoke is quieting down as the daytime wildlife changes hands to the nighttime crew. The wind, not to be ignored, blows through the plants growing here, whispering bedtime stories that only they can hear. The prairie is edged with subtle shapes, gone blurry as day fades to night. And I am here, part of this land, watching the shifting and shading, 
with great delight. Megan, that was really nice. I, I, it really, it was beautiful. I, I, I like the, the sunset, sunrise, sunset metaphor. I think that worked really well. And I agree. Gwen's, Gwen's poetry is amazing and also a really nice way to finish things off here on the podcast. Yes, very inspiring. And it, it also struck me that um, she mentioned some of the same things that others have mentioned, you know, on common themes about what draws you or what drew me to the prairie, what's drawn others to the prairie is, you know, the diversity, the wide open space, that feeling that you get out there. So, and she, her poetry captures that just beautifully. Yeah. Hey, I think there was at least four people, four stories that involved openness and space and those kinds of things in the prairie. That was, it was at least touched on. Including me and Sarah, I know. So <laughs> that is valuable. Clearly. I and I don't you just feel like this whole episode echoes what Marissa was saying at the beginning about how there are so many different ways to be interested in the prairie and so many different things to be like different kinds of people and different interests that can draw people to the prairie. It's not just a scientist or not just a poet. There's so many different avenues to fall in love with the prairie. And I think all of our storytellers really brought that home. Yeah, it amazes point. me that no matter how much we learn about the prairie, it almost always comes back to diversity and connection. I was just going to say that, Megan. It just like that exemplifies the diversity theme, right? And I think if there's anything that I keep learning in life is that diversity is just um, so important to so many different aspects of, mm -hmm. of life. Um, the prairie, just life in general, um, how we approach it, how we, how we go about connection. Yeah. yeah, and how we're connected to each other is going to determine the fate of the prairie. Because how much we share and know and learn with people that we never anticipated that we would talk to or speak with or learn with. To me, I think that's going to shape the future for what happens next. Thank you so much for giving us the chance to be a part of this podcast and co-hosting with you these last couple seasons. It's just been such a joy and really fun to get to be part of making some of those connections. Yes, I'm um, incredibly grateful for that opportunity and the opportunity to be here with you all and talk with all the people we've been able to talk with and learn all the things and help get out the message because um, it's so important. You guys are going to make Mike cry. Hey, the <laughs> listeners, it's always possible. Uh, the, I want the listeners to know that, yeah, this has been a really a group effort, obviously, but Megan has been the energy behind this. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm think giving, that'll surprise anyone that Megan is the energy. <laughs> I'm giving Mike a look right now. All the th all the best things that we do together, we do in partnership with each other. And there wouldn't be a podcast without all of you listening, without these fabulous co-hosts, without all the people behind the scenes who make it happen, and without all of our amazing guests who took the time to share with all of us all of their 
learning and their energy and their unique ways of knowing. And so from, you know, production to fact checking to website design to audio engineering to just listen to this while you're driving somewhere, this podcast happened because of the dedication that you have to the prairie. And I, we want to make sure before we close it out that we say a big thank you to Jessica Peterson, one of the founding members of the podcast, Dan Ryder, Jed Beecher, Bobby Booz, Kelly Randall. Thank you to all of the guests over the years. We can't wait to see what you do next. And like we said at the beginning, one sunset is always followed by another sunrise. As always, you can find all the resources we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. While this is one ending, the heart song of the prairie lives on in all of you. The journey doesn't stop here. The partnership and efforts for protection of the prairie will absolutely continue. And just remember, every choice you make has the potential to make a difference, even if it feels like a very small choice. Um, And I know sometimes they do feel small and insubstantial, but every choice you make matters from a small pollinator prairie garden to thousands of acres of connected habitat to telling a friend that you think the prairie is neat. It's the math that makes it all work. All these small decisions add up. They do. And they contribute to the survival of the prairie. Thank you for spending this time with us, listening to our passion, our joy and how wonderful it is when you finally discover the prairie.